good morning. I'm going to read John 3, 1 through 15 this morning. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. With me, that you move into a house, and it has the most incredible window. And outside the window, it has the best view you've ever seen in the world. Mountains with snow-capped peaks and a sea in front of it. And it is the best place. These storms roll in and the colors are amazing and the sunsets are awesome. And so you decide to invite some friends over to see it. So your friends come over and they're looking out the window and they are like, this is the greatest view in the world. But they've got little kids, and the little kids run up, and they put their face up on the window, as kids do. And So afterwards, you get out the Windex, and you decide, i got to clean off this window. And pretty soon, it becomes the talking point of your town, and people are coming all the time, so that you start charging admission for people to come and see this view. But with more people comes more dirt and more fingerprints. And so at one point, you actually draw a little boundary on the ground to say, get no closer than this. And actually, it becomes such a task to keep cleaning it that you just keep your cleaning supplies out there all the time. And you know, it's such a huge window that you get some scaffolding because to get to the very top corner is really difficult. And so you leave that scaffolding up there. And eventually, people start talking about how much work you're doing on this window. So then people actually start to come see that instead. And after years of this, you have the best window in the world. But you haven't looked through it for years. You have become a Pharisee. This is what a Pharisee is. Somebody who has an incredible view, but over time has been lulled into looking at the window, instead of looking through the window to the scene behind it. 
Now, that seems like something you wouldn't want to do, right? Nobody's, nobody wants to be a Pharisee, right? They're, they're, con- they're constantly ragged on in the New Testament, and we think to ourselves, I don't want to be a Pharisee. Who would do that? So I want to give you a little background. How did the Pharisees become Pharisees? How do you get to a point where you are so consumed with the apparatus before the scene than with the scene itself? Now, in your Bibles, between the book of Malachi at the end of the Old Testament and Matthew in the New Testament, actually a lot happens, okay? In your Bible reading plan, it's easy. You just turn the page, fast forward 450 years, and Jesus is about to come on the scene. But during that period of time, actually a lot happened. There's a big change in the geopolitical order. The Greeks come in, and the Assyrians and Babylonians are out, and the Greeks have a little different theory of uh, religious tolerance than the Persians do. They actually believe that you need to worship the Greek gods. So what they do is they send this general named Antiochus Epiphanes into Jerusalem. And he lays siege to uh, the town of Jerusalem, and he ends up conquering it. And because of his trouble, he wants to stick it to the people of God in Jerusalem. So what he does is he mandates all these rules that they have to follow, and he goes in and he sacrifices a pig on the altar of the temple in Jerusalem. Well, as you can imagine, this does not sit well with most of the Jews. And this little revolutionary band of people begin to have meetings. And as Antiochus Epiphanes gets thrown off by this family called the Maccabees, this group of people are known as the people who are strict and who are pure. And in Aramaic, that word is Pharisee. So the Pharisees become a group that is concerned that the people of their religion are selling out to the ruling power. The Pharisees are really concerned that people are actually sacrificing what God says to do what the Greek rulers say. Eventually, actually, they oppose the Jewish leadership. When Herod becomes king, they oppose Herod's rule because Herod is not a pure and faithful Jew. So by the time you get to the first centuries, the, the, the Pharisees are an extremely powerful interest group. They are specializing in ways of making sure that we keep God's law exactly the way he said. And what they start to do is they say, actually, it's not good enough to just keep the law. Because if you actually go up right to the edge of the law, what happens if you make a mistake and then maybe you go over the law? So they said it's not enough just to not work on the Sabbath. We actually need to put some rules in place to make sure that people don't accidentally work on the Sabbath. So what they do, they actually come up with 39 categories of things you cannot do on the Sabbath to make sure that you don't end up working on the Sabbath. Right? You're kind of thinking in your mind, you're like, I know some of these people. These people are still around. I was asked to dog sit a few years ago. When you're a single person, this happens to you all the time. Can you dog sit? Sure, absolutely. Um, no problem. Let the dog in, let the dog out, feed him. No big deal. Except this one time, this lady said, the person that did it last time did a terrible job. I'm surprised. I can't remember the dog's name at this point, but I'm surprised that she made it through that. So actually, now I have seven pages of instructions for you to take care of my dog. And I thought, am I getting course credit for this? I mean, this is going to be a lot of time and energy. That's the impulse of a Pharisee. This has not been done right in the past, so now we've got to make rules to make sure that it's done correctly in the future. 
So it's not enough to tithe your income for the Pharisees. Instead, 10% of your earnings is not what you wouldn't want to stumble into maybe having 9.99%. So what you got to do is you got to go out to your garden in the back and you've got to cut up all your dill and mint and all the uh, tomatoes that you have in your garden. And you've got to give a tenth of those because you wouldn't want to accidentally not give 10%. You know, one of the examples I think is so characteristic is they, one of the 39 categories on the Sabbath is you cannot reap in your fields on the Sabbath. Now, that leads to a question, especially if you're kind of a Pharisee inclination, but what do you mean by reaping? So they, in the, in, in the Mishnah, which is a bunch of uh, commentaries on the laws written by the Pharisees, they actually say, okay, reaping is any time you detach the head of a plant from the stalk of a plant. That is the definition of reaping. Not allowed to do that because reaping is working on the Sabbath. So what they did was they actually outlawed climbing trees on the Sabbath. Because if you're climbing a tree and you go out on a branch that's too thin and it snaps off, that would be reaping. Then you would be working on the Sabbath. So no tree climbing. So they were concerned with the Sabbath, but they actually had another concern that was more pervasive. And that was with purity and cleanness. And if you remember in the Old Testament, this is a big part of the law, is what does it mean to be clean and unclean? If you are clean, you can worship in the temple. If you are unclean, you cannot worship in the temple. And since worshiping in the temple is such an important thing, and since the Pharisees at this time had gotten control over the temple, they wanted to make sure that nobody was even accidentally unclean when they came into the temple to worship God. You know, the Torah commands that you are clean, and it gives a lot of stipulations, but the Pharisees were not content with that. They actually had 83 rules about hand-washing. 83 rules, not just sing happy birthday or whatever, you know, while you're washing. They had 83 rules about that. Do not come unclean. Do not touch unclean animals. Do not touch anyone who's touched an unclean animal. And above everything else, never, ever touch a dead body. Never touch a dead body. That would make you unclean in the worst kind of way. So the scene we enter into in the first century is these are the religious leaders at the time. They're the ones with the prestigious jobs at the seminaries. They're writing the books. They are commanding the people to repent, to return to God, and to keep all of these rules. And you know, Jesus really frustrates these people. Jesus comes along, and he and his disciples are hungry, and it just so happens to be a Saturday on the Sabbath, and they just go through the fields plucking off grain of wheat and eating it. They're like, have you ever read the Old Testament? You cannot do that. That's working on the Sabbath. He goes in, and and they, they say, your disciples don't even wash their hands before they eat. Aren't you worried that they might be unclean? Jesus constantly pays no mind to the rules of the Pharisees, and because of that, they decide, this guy has got to go. And in that context, late one night, a Pharisee decides to come and talk to Jesus. You notice in the first part of this chapter, in chapter 3 of John, verse 1, he tells us two things. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, he's a ruler of the Jews, and he came to Jesus by night. So I've got a pastor friend who calls this story, Nick at Night. And... <laughs> That, that really captures the two most important things about this story. Who is Nicodemus and why did he come at night? 
So Nicodemus is a Pharisee, like I've described. He's one of the ruling elite. Their, their group is called the Sanhedrin. They become a big player later because Jesus is tried before the Sanhedrin. But I want to focus for a minute on why does he come at night? Why does he come to Jesus at night? Now, the regular answer is he wants to come secretly. And, and that might be true. It might be true that, that he wants to come un, in secret, but there's actually a couple more compelling reasons why he might come at night. Number one, the rabbis of the time, which would be Pharisees and scribes and religious rulers, would study the Torah at night. I'm going to tell you why they did this. Because in Psalm chapter 1, it says, Blessed is the man who meditates on your law day and night. Okay? These people did not believe in metaphors, okay? They thought day and night means day and night. You will not be blessed if the sun is up and you're studying Torah, and then when it goes down, you don't study Torah. So you've got to study day and night. So they would have these evening study sessions where they would debate each other, they would comment on the text, they would memorize Scripture together. And I wonder if that was the time that Nicodemus came to see Jesus because that's when they studied the law. Here's another reason. In the Gospel of John, he's telling us these historical events, but he's including details not just because they're historically accurate, but because when you select details in a story, they always need to have some significance or you wouldn't put them in there, right? You can't write a real live-time chronicle of Jesus' life. John tells us at the end of his Gospel, you could fill the whole world up with books about Jesus, but these details have been included so that you will know that he is the Son of God. Every detail in the Gospels is important. It's like there's a good saying about drama. If you've ever taken an English class, Chekhov's rifle. If you're reading a play and there's a rifle above the door in Act 1, it will be fired by Act 4, okay? Read the Gospels with that in mind. If you see a detail in the Gospels, it is there for a reason. So why did he come at night? He came at night because he was spiritually in the dark. He came at night because he was spiritually in the dark. He may have been hiding, he may have been studying, but he comes to Jesus at night, and every time John tells us somebody is doing something in the night, it's because they are spiritually in the dark. Now, what are the qualities that he might be telling us about this? Well, in the dark, you can't see anything, right? This sounds like a no-duh statement. But it's hard to live your life in the dark because if you can't see where you're going, you can never be intentional with your steps. So the other night... Laura asked me if I would take the pizza boxes from Mama Tig's out to our dumpster, and it was dark. And wanted to be a good husband, I wanted to snap too, I wanted to do it the first time, every time, with a good attitude, um, just like my mom taught me. So I didn't even bother to put shoes on, I didn't take my phone, we didn't have our lights on out there. I go out and I realize I'm in the little rock river that they have, and my feet are killing me, and I cannot see anything, so I say, i got to step out of here. And I step right into the side of this boulder that I didn't even know was there, and I get back in, and I show I have this bloody hand, and she's like, what the heck happened to you out there? And so I should have worn shoes, and I should have brought a light. Because the problem when you're spiritually in the dark is, no matter where you step, you can never be sure. When you're spiritually in the dark, you can never be sure of where you step. And I think that's what we're supposed to see about Nicodemus. He is from a group of people who prize certainty. But internally, that facade has begun to crack, and he is unsure. One of the commentators says, Nicodemus approached Jesus at night, but his own night was even darker 
than he knew. So Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born again. If you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. Now, I've described the Pharisees for you, but I actually want to come to the defense of the Pharisees for a minute. Because as I mentioned earlier, it has gotten so cliche to rip on the Pharisees. I mean, there is nothing easier in a church today than to rip on religious, legalistic, pharisaical people. I mean, there's, there's actually a whole cottage industry of people who have made a fortune ripping on people who are pharisaical in the church. I mean, you can get books about this, podcasts, videos, churches that define their mission around, we are not like those religious people. And sure enough, Jesus actually reserves some of his harshest words in the Gospels for the Pharisees. If he goes to bat against anybody in the Gospels, it's against these guys. But he also says this, in, in Matthew chapter 5, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is a real puzzle when you're reading the Gospels. How is it that the Pharisees are enemies of the kingdom of God, but unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, which, like we said, is the highest bar, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven? Notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say to Nicodemus, you know what? Don't keep the Sabbath. Don't do the purity laws. Don't do what Moses said. God is not into that. This is not about any of those things. Forget that. He doesn't say that. In fact, later he says, if you relax one of these laws, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So I want to be clear about what Jesus opposes about the Pharisees. He doesn't just oppose them because they're law keepers. God inspired the law, just like the New Testament. He doesn't oppose them because they're fastidious about details. He doesn't oppose them in particular because they're legalistic. He opposes the Pharisees because they're hypocrites. They actually can't live up to what they say they live up to. They've begun to focus and find their worth and find their value on the window and not the view. So Jesus says to them, you must be born again if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus, I want, to, I want to stand up here for a minute. He's not as dense as he sounds in this dialogue, okay? There's some reasons why he says, so he says, you got to be born again. And Nicodemus goes, you mean like, how can a person enter into their mother's womb again? And you're like, dude, how are you not? I told you they don't believe in metaphors, but I mean, it's like, how are you not seeing this? This guy always speaks like this. But what Nicodemus was expecting was something very different than what he got with Jesus. He, he actually probably expected a Messiah to come. He was looking for someone like Jesus. But Jesus began to break all of his categories, and instead of rejecting Nicodemus outright, he actually wants to reform Nicodemus's religion. Actually, what he wants to do is he doesn't want to change what Nicodemus is doing. He wants to change Nicodemus himself. You must be born again. See, the answer to doing something wrong is not to stop doing it, it's to do it right. Okay, this is, a, this is a really easy thing to do. If somebody does something the wrong way, the answer is not to just never do that thing again. It's actually to do that, that thing the right way. So the answer to eating tons and tons of junk food is not to stop eating. It's to eat good food, right? The answer to a legalistic interpretation of reading your Bible is not to stop reading your Bible altogether. It's to read it with the right heart. Okay, the, the answer to seeking after being seen to be a Christian, 
The answer to that is not to just swear off Christianity altogether. It's to be the kind of person that God designed you to be, with the heart that he gave you, with the spirit that is in you, to be the worshiper we see in the next chapter who seeks him in spirit and in truth. So to that end, Jesus says two things to Nicodemus that we can learn from. He says, number one, the kingdom is here. Notice in in the first part of chapter 3, Nicodemus basically says, how are you doing these signs and wonders? Nicodemus wants to know how Jesus gets his authority. And Jesus responds to him in a way that seems like it's a little bit disjointed. He says, I say to you in verse 5, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And if you're reading this, you're like, what? how do we get to the kingdom of God? Where did this come from? What Nicodemus wants to know is, how do you have authority? And Jesus says, because I'm the king and the kingdom is here. The kingdom is here now. What was common among the Pharisees in the first century, and this is actually when we talked about the woman at the well in chapter 4 a couple of weeks ago, she had this same belief. It was that if you do the right things now and the kingdom comes in the future, you'll be in. That's the message. The kingdom is coming in the future, and if you do the right things now, when that time happens, you will be in. If the scales are weighing like this, good things, bad things, and they're on the good things side, when, when the Messiah comes, you are going to be in with the Messiah. So the, the woman at the well puts this really plainly. When Jesus says, I'm the Messiah, she says, I know that somebody is coming in the future, and then we're going to worship, and Jesus says, no, that time is now. Nicodemus says, how can you have all this authority, like you run the place? And Jesus says, I do. The kingdom is here. The time is now. See, what, what Jesus did is he, he revises the way that we see the timeline of history. They thought time starts here, it goes all the way to the end, the kingdom will happen at the end, and then we'll live in paradise with God forever. But what, what God did was he took the end of the timeline and he poked a little hole on cavalry, and they put a cross down there and he took the end of the timeline up through the middle and now the end of the ages is here. The end of the ages started 2,000 years ago when Jesus died and rose from the dead. The kingdom is here. The king is reigning, gradually bringing us to the place where he will come and gather us up and we'll live with him forever. But Jesus says, you don't have to wait anymore. The kingdom is here now. Well, this would have flipped Nicodemus's paradigm on its head. If the kingdom is here now, I haven't had enough time to do good things right? This is like a pop quiz. I'm not ready for this. And Nicodemus is saying, okay, I've I've lived this great life, and you're telling me that the deadline has already passed. What Jesus says to him when he says the kingdom is here is the judgment has been made. Later in this chapter, it says the verdict is in. A couple weeks ago, I read you a quote from Tim Keller who says, Christianity is the only religion in the world where you get the verdict before the performance. Every other religion in the world, you do the performance, and then at the end the judge says, yay, nay, one to ten, is it good, is it bad? But actually Christianity is different. The verdict is already in. You are in the darkness, but the light is shining. Will you walk in the light, or will you walk in the darkness? Jesus puts it another way here. He says you must be born of spirit and of water. This actually means that there's nothing that you can do to earn God's favor. If you are in Christ, you have it. If you are out, no matter how many good deeds you do, you're not in it. So Nicodemus must have been thinking to himself, is it possible that I can be reconciled to God now? 
Jesus uses a metaphor at the end of this story in verse 14, at the very end of what we read. Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness. And so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. There's a story in the Old Testament in the book of Numbers. The people of Israel are rebelling against God, as they do constantly. And so they are punished. And these serpents, these flaming serpents, aren't you glad that God's kind of changed a little bit the way that he judges us now? I mean, flaming serpents begin biting people. And they get sick. And if they don't do anything, they're going to die. And what God tells Moses to do is to take this serpent up on a pole. And actually, you see this now. It's a healthcare symbol. And this is where it comes from in the book of Numbers. If you look at the serpent on the pole, you will live. But if you do anything else, you will die. And Jesus says there's a new sign. The cross of Christ lifted up on Calvary. If you look to him, you will be saved. And if you try to do it with any other way, you will perish. The Son of Man must be lifted up because if anyone looks on the Son, he will have life. Jesus' word to Nicodemus is the kingdom is here. If you look to the Son, you will live. But he says something else, and this is even more intriguing. This is the brilliance of what Jesus is saying, because if you, if you hear that, you say, okay, that's, that's great, and that's very ethereal, and, and, and that sounds good in principle, but how do you do it? How do you get to be, how do you look at the snake? How do you, I mean, let's put this on the bottom shelf. How do you get to be born again? And so Jesus says to him in the middle of this dialogue, he says, that which is born of flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And do, you not, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again, because the wind, and there's a pun here, the word for wind and the word for spirit are the same word. So the wind blows wherever it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with every person who is born of the Spirit. So not only is the kingdom here, but you must be born again. Now, the Bible describes God as our Father over and over and over again. And part of the reason it does that is because he has the authority over his family. That's one of the reasons. Part of it is we get to join a family that will endure forever. That's one of the reasons. Um, but there's another reason. And that is that God is our Father in the way that if you are in Christ, you now have his DNA. You actually are in his family, and when you're born, you don't get to pick who your parents are, right? But you take on their traits, okay? This is one of the things I always loved about doing college ministry and being a youth pastor for years. You get to know all the kids, and then at some point, their parents come, and you say, yeah, I totally get it now. Because like it or not, you resemble your parents, not just physically, but you actually begin to act like them. The way that you were raised, the traditions you have, the things that you say, the way you react when things don't go right, those come from your parents. And you don't get to pick your earthly parents, but your heavenly father picked you. And he says, if you want to be born again, you will actually be born again of a new spiritual DNA. And in 1 John, John makes this point explicitly. He says, you know how we know who are the children of God? Because they look like him. You know how we know who are the children of God? Because they do what he does. They serve other people. They love other people. They walk in his commandments. They take on his resemblance in the world. And so Jesus says to him, actually to be born again means to live in the image of God that you were created to live in. 
You know, there's this, there's this passage in Ezekiel that Jesus is referencing. Actually, the only time in the Old Testament you see spirit and water connected like this is in Ezekiel chapter 36. And in Ezekiel, he says, here's what's going to happen when the Messiah comes. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to sprinkle you with clean water. I'm going to give you a new spirit. And what that spirit does is it obeys the commands of God. So here's what happens. On your own, you can never attain God's standards. You can never love him the way that you are commanded to. You can never love other people the way that you're commanded to. If you are doing it on your own, you will never be able to do that. But what Jesus says is, but if you are born again, if you look to him and you have the spirit in your heart, you can't help but obey him. You can't help but look like him. You can't help but love other people because when God puts his spirit in you and recreates you, you act like a child of God. So here's the big enigma for uh, somebody like Nicodemus. is It's not that what you were doing is wrong. It's that the person doing it was the problem. And I will make you a new person. And in Romans 15, Paul says, and you will become a law keeper in the law of love. Well, Ezekiel proves this point in the next chapter in maybe the most famous part of this section of the Bible. He goes out to this valley, and the Spirit comes to me and says, I want you to preach to this valley. And there's a bunch of dry bones. So he goes to this graveyard. He says, I want you to preach to those bones. And you got to be thinking, Ezekiel was like, what is going on here? So he gives some sermon to him, and all of a sudden, the ground starts rustling. And the bones begin to stand up. It's the greatest Halloween ever. Tendons begin to, and skin and hair and everything. And all of a sudden, Ezekiel looks out, and because of the word of the Lord, you have a living, breathing army of people ready to do the will of God. And Jesus says, if you are born again, of spirit and of water, you will be like those people, raised from the dead, ready to walk in the newness of life. As you can imagine, Nicodemus's mind is kind of blown by this conversation, and he doesn't get it at first. Nicodemus is one of those people in the Gospels, one of the very few that we get a glimpse of his process of coming to Christ. You know, in the next chapter, the woman at the well, Jesus talks to her, and immediately she gets it. And she goes and she starts preaching about it. And the guy we talked about last week that he casts a thousand demons out of, he gets it. And he goes and he starts preaching. And Nicodemus walks away scratching his head like, I don't know if I believe that. But this isn't the last we see of Nicodemus in the Gospel of John. Nicodemus begins to follow Christ. I actually love the way they did this in The Chosen. If you've seen the show The Chosen, you see that Nicodemus has this inner turmoil. He wants to follow Jesus but he's not ready to give up all those 83 rules about hand washings just yet. He's not ready to leave his social sphere. He's not ready to give up the prestige and the power that come with being a religious ruler. And in chapter 7 of John, there's a meeting of the Sanhedrin, and they're talking about what to do with Jesus. And they say, let's just get him and kill him. Let's just do that. And one of the Pharisees, Nicodemus, says, I mean, shouldn't we at least give the guy a hearing? And you say, okay, he stuck his toe out. So maybe, maybe we should just follow our laws because you know, he's not ready to say, hey, I'm actually one of them, but he says, maybe we should give this guy a hearing. But actually, a couple of years later, something happens. Jesus is tried. He is convicted. He is put to death. 
He does go to the cross and he dies. And in the end of John, in chapter 19, verse 38, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a secret disciple of Christ, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate for the body of Christ. And this says this, and he brought Nicodemus with him. And Nicodemus brought 75 pounds of spices. This is like a small fortune that Nicodemus brings with him. And in this scene, we realize he finally got it. He finally got it. Is he looking at the window anymore, or is he looking at the scene? I know he's looking at the scene, and here's why. Nicodemus realizes that he doesn't have to prove it anymore, and he actually needs to live it. He, he realizes that he actually doesn't need to keep the law so that God will approve of him. God approves of him, and so now he can keep the law. He realizes that what God calls you to do and what God sets before you, if you obey that, you are with him no matter what. And John says this, Joseph and Nicodemus took the dead body of Christ. He got it. Let me pray. Father, thank you that no matter how high we set our standards, we can never attain what you have for us. And Father, I thank you for a story like Nicodemus's and all the ways that we, um, we can scapegoat him, we can point to him, we can put him down, but in our hearts, Lord, we have tried and tried and tried to earn your favor. Father, help us to realize that um, if we look to your son, we have your favor. And that, Father, you're doing something in our hearts by your spirit that we can never do alone. Father, I pray as we contemplate Nicodemus, we think about his last act in the Gospels. What was that? Father, we see him tear down all the scaffolding and look and behold you. So, Father, help us to do that now. Help us to see you. Lord, help us to think about the fact that if we are in you, we are free to obey you. Father, we're not just going through the motions anymore, but we are communing with you. We're living the life that you called us to live. So, Father, we ask for your spirit to enliven us, to breathe life into rituals and repetitive actions and rote things that we do. Father, to bring life to your word as we study it, to these words as we sing them. Father, we pray that you would give us eyes for the things that you're calling us to do, even if they cross the boundaries that we'd set. In Jesus' name we pray.